The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn News. What can I do today, right now, to become 5% happier? Hey, everyone. From LinkedIn News, this is In the Arena, a podcast exploring human potential. I'm Leah Smart, and every week you'll find me right here in conversation with bright minds and brave hearts, learning how we can improve our lives and our world by transforming ourselves. So Tal Ben-Shahar is a renowned positive psychology professor and author. And throughout his career, he studied well-being and what positive psychologists think of as the meaningful life extensively. So I asked him to come onto the show to share how we all pursue overall well-being, which is the belief that you're thriving in your life, and how we continually practice it every day despite our challenges or just not feeling like it. So we talked about what you really need to maintain motivation while celebrating your small wins, why you actually shouldn't pursue happiness directly, and the one concept you have to know about that will strengthen your resilience. I am ecstatic to share his wealth of knowledge with you today. This was a favorite episode. But first, and as usual, I wanted to know what the purpose is behind his work. Here's Tal Ben-Shahar. So my personal uh, mission statement is to spread happiness. Uh, What I'd like is to see more and more people enjoy what I've come to call life's ultimate currency or what Aristotle referred to as the end towards which all other ends lead. So uh, my goal is to increase levels of happiness in schools, in organizations, in families, in our society. I like the idea of um, happiness being the ultimate currency, but what does that mean? The ultimate currency means that every other currency that we have, whether it's dollars and cents, whether it's prestige, are all subordinate to that one. Because if you think about it, you know, why do people want money beyond our basic needs, of course, uh, you know, for shelter, for food. But beyond that, what we need or want more money for is because we believe that it will actually make us happier. Why do people want to succeed? Because they believe that success, prestige, accolades, this is what will make them happier. What do they want to achieve? Because they believe attaining a certain milestone will make them happier. In other words, you will always get to ultimately happiness as the underlying cause. And therefore, it's the ultimate currency. It's the currency that all other currencies lead to. So does that mean it's the only thing that matters or it's what we should be paying attention to? It's not the only thing that matters, but that also depends on how we define happiness. You know, if we define happiness as just pleasure, You know, I was so happy having this ice cream or, uh, you know, it made me so happy, uh, you know, lying on the beach. Then, of course, it's not the only thing that matters or even the most important thing. However, if we also see happiness as about a sense of meaning and purpose, if we also see happiness as about uh, cultivating relationships, as kindness, then happiness includes much more in it. And therefore, happiness deserves a high place in our uh, goals, objectives, hierarchy. Not the only thing that matters, but it's very important. 
I'm envisioning like the idea of the basic pleasures like ice cream or being on the beach being really thin. But what you're describing as happiness is a much fuller thing that we're seeking. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, there are many definitions to happiness. And of course, there's no right definition. But the way I teach it is according to the SPIRE model. SPIRE being an acronym where the S stands for spiritual well-being. The P is physical well-being. The I is intellectual well-being. The R is relational. And finally, the E is emotional well-being. So, you know, having that ice cream perhaps provides me emotional well-being. But that's only a small part of it. Even more important than that are the relations, relational well-being that I cultivate. Even more important than that is do I find a sense of meaning and purpose in what I'm doing in my life, which is spiritual well-being? Am I learning intellectual well-being? And of course, physical well-being matters a great deal too. Do I exercise? Do I take care of my body? So these are different elements of happiness, and they're all important. Not all at once, not all the time, but they're all important. Where should we start with those five? Yeah, great question. And because sometimes when people hear about the elements of happiness, the spire elements, they're overwhelmed. (laughs) Where do we start? And, you know, we only have 24 hours in a day. And the answer is anywhere. To be even more specific, I would go for the lowest hanging fruit. Why anywhere? Because happiness is a system. And when we impact one part of the system, every other part is impacted. So Charles Duhigg talks about the keystone habits, the most important habits, those things that will make a difference in every other area. And it could be exercise because if I start an exercise regime, that will make me feel better. It will have an impact on my emotional well-being. As a result, it probably is going to make me a nicer person. In other words, improve my relationships. I'm much more likely to be thinking about the big picture, about a sense of meaning and purpose, spiritual well-being, and all because I started exercising regularly. Similarly, I can start with gratitude. And it's through gratitude that the other elements of well-being will be impacted. And the reason why I said lowest hanging fruit is because bringing about change is not easy. It's challenging. And therefore, we should go for the easy ones. So even within exercise, people ask me, so what's the best form of exercise? Well, it's your favorite because if you love to dance, dance. You know, if you love to play ball, do that. So the key is to select an entry point into that system and then do it consistently, persistently. So I like that you brought up physical because I'm someone who grew up playing sports. So I was always, you know, physically active. And I recently signed up for the New York City Marathon, which I am massively unprepared for. So, uh, you know, as I'm considering the time frame for getting ready for it, the thing that's been hardest for me is I know how good physical exercise feels and is, but getting started is what's scariest, hardest. I'm one of those people that's like overachiever. So it's like I want to get on the road and be running, you know, a, a personal best pace, even though I haven't run in months. And so I have been struggling with this challenge of it's like all or nothing. Do I either run or do no exercise at all? And last weekend, I finally was like, just get out and go for a freaking walk. <laughs> like, And so I like the point of, you know, 
what do I do? It's my favorite thing. Where do I start the lowest hanging fruit? I feel like maybe for me it was not the lowest hanging fruit, but I picked the easiest thing within it. Yeah. And sometimes it's not easy to start. So there's a lot of research on uh, procrastination. And it turns out that about 80% of the people see themselves as procrastinators or have issues with procrastination. 80% of people. That's a lot. 80% of people. So the question is, what do you do with it? Let's say you are struggling with procrastination. And what the researchers looked at was what distinguishes, what characteristic primarily distinguishes people who perceive themselves or really are procrastinators versus people who are not, the minority. And they found a very interesting difference. And the difference has to do with mindset. So procrastinators believe that inspiration precedes action or that motivation needs to come before we do something. So I really need to want to go for a run in order to go for that run. Or I really need personally to want to write before I actually start writing. So that's procrastinators' mindset. I feel seen. Those who don't procrastinate. <laughs> yes. So those who don't procrastinate have it the other way around. Mm. They don't think inspiration needs to come before action. They understand that sometimes action needs to come before inspiration, that we sometimes need to do something and then motivation comes. You know, I, I, I write a lot and um, I, I realized after a few years that my students actually think that every morning I wake up And, you know, I have a eureka experience, an aha moment, and I go towards the light and write with so much joy and love and happiness. Sometimes, maybe, usually that's not the case. Very often, I don't feel like writing. But knowing this, the importance of the mindset, I just do it. So I take action, and then after five minutes or 20 minutes or an hour, the motivation is generated but it doesn't come first. The inspiration comes after the action. So that really hit me because I've been what I'd call a procrastinator for most of my life. And I've still gotten things done, but it's riddled with procrastination before I actually do it because I have had the belief that I have to feel like it or want to, and that's when I do it versus I have to do it, especially because 80% of people say they are. That is such an aha moment to realize that it's the action that inspires versus I need inspiration to act. And, you know, there is a a wonderful book by uh, Anders Ericsson Mm -hmm. called Peak, and it's about peak performance. And he's uh, arguably the most important researcher in the area of performance. So you may have heard of the 10,000 hour rule. Of course. That's his. Mm. And, you know, Malcolm Gladwell writes about him a lot. But one of the things that he talks about in Peak that is unfortunately not reported on sufficiently is the whole idea of motivation. When we look at the experts, at the best performance, you know, the, the Olympic athletes, for instance, we always think that their motivation is primarily, mostly, maybe even solely intrinsic. Meaning when they were six years old, they decided that they want to be the best gymnast in the world or the best basketball player in the world. And then from then on, it was, you know, hard work, dedication, all driven from within. Mm -hmm. That's not the case. Yes, some of it is driven from within. And yes, they did love gymnastics when they started it. But a large part 
of the journey was driven by extrinsic rather than intrinsic motivation. So not just by the passion that burned, but rather by the want for the accolades and the praise. And part of being human is that we want to be praised. We want those accolades. We want that success that is approved of by others. And that's an important part of the journey, that external motivation. In other words, we're not always inspired from within. Sometimes we need help from the outside. You know, I'm thinking of people who get in a rut where maybe you do start with this passion and fire and desire to achieve or accomplish or create something, and then you have your your rut moment. We all do. Is the extrinsic motivator then a helpful way to pull yourself out of a rut? Exactly right. And you know, Leah, you hit the nail on the head. We all do. Mm -hmm. So it's not like, oh, there are some lucky few who don't experience their rut. There are some lucky few who every day when they wake up are just, you know, rearing to go. We all experience those downs, the absence of energy and desire and strength. Hmm. The question is, what do we do when we experience it? And, and people who are successful, and again, I'm talking about success in the conventional mm -hmm. sense of the word, who have achieved and are achieving, they're able to, in spite of that rut, they just go on. They continue. They do it anyway. And sometimes the motivation for it comes from the outside. People who have an accountability buddy, people who do it together, end up doing it a lot better. In fact, I'm not talking about 10 or 20% more likely to succeed in the long term. We're talking about 100 to 200% more likely to succeed in the long haul if we do it with someone else. We need that extrinsic motivation at times. Mm. So if we have an accountability buddy, that can help a great deal. Mm. So, you know, you were talking about ruts, and I find that lots of people I talk to who've made their way to this work of researching happiness, of thinking about life and purpose and what we're doing here and asking these big questions have had a moment or a series of moments in their lives that have brought them to this work. Did you have a moment? Oh, yes. And there were moments when I realized just how unhappy I was. So I became interested in happiness because of my own unhappiness. I fell into the trap. I had the misconception that success leads to happiness. And, uh, you know, I was a professional athlete. I played professional squash. And I really thought that when I win this big tournament, then I'll be happy. And I won a tournament and I was happy for four hours. And then back to the grind, or I thought, okay, when I get into Harvard, then I'll be happy. And I was happy, very happy when I got in. You know, it lasted a couple of weeks. You know, I felt sort of like Sisyphus, you know, pushing that rock up the mountain and then truly believing, as by the way, many do, that when you get to the top, then you'll be happy. And yeah, I was happy at the top for a short while because then the rock slipped right back down and it started again. And what I realized that I need to focus a lot more, you know, to use a cliche, on the journey. But that cliche doesn't help in and of itself because we need to understand, okay, so what does this journey actually look like? And that launched me on this journey of uh, searching for what are the antecedents, what are the conditions that will lead to more happiness. One thing I know for certain, it's not about getting to that peak, whatever it is, whether it's in sports or academia or business or even relationships. It's not about the achievement of a goal. It's about what we do along the way. If we want to experience happiness, to fulfill our potential for happiness, what we need 
is uh, to find something that is meaningful to us, that gets us out of bed in the morning. And again, not every morning, and sometimes we struggle, and that's okay. But that thing is still there. When you talked about, or if we think about the idea of ruts and then moving into what gets out of bed in the morning, it makes me think about, I was recently watching a video of yours where you talk about resilience 1.0 versus 2.0. And this is one of my favorite concepts in positive psychology is this idea of post-traumatic growth. And in the video, essentially shows that resilience is, you know, something brings you down, then you go right back up to the exact spot you were. That's resilience 1.0. But then 2.0 is something brings you down and you go even higher when you come back up than you were. Can you talk about post-traumatic growth? And is that the same as resilience 2.0 or is there some sort of difference? PTG stands for post-traumatic growth. And as you pointed out, post-traumatic growth is about actually growing stronger, better, healthier as a result of trauma. It's what I call resilience 2.0. And Here is the thing. Here is the important thing about this concept. Post-traumatic growth is potentially twice as likely as post-traumatic stress disorder. In other words, we are twice as likely to be anti-fragile, to grow from hardship, than to be fragile, to break down as a result of hardship. Twice as likely if, and this is the big if here, first of all, We need to know about the possibility of post-traumatic growth. We need to know that it's possible to actually be resilient 2.0, to grow from hardship or trauma or difficulty. Just knowing about it increases the likelihood that it will happen. Second, we need to know what conditions we can put in place in order to increase the likelihood, cannot guarantee it, but to increase the likelihood that we will grow from hardship. Now, most people don't know about post-traumatic growth or resilience 2.0 or anti-fragility. And most people certainly don't know what conditions to put in place to experience those. And therefore, so much human potential for growth, development, health, happiness is wasted. And that's unfortunate. The goal, the objective of the science of well-being is specifically to help people understand these concepts, post-traumatic growth, resilience 2.0, anti-fragility, and to understand what conditions they can put in place or their family or organization can put in place to increase the likelihood thereof. God, that makes me emotional just imagining that there's a 2x likelihood of PTG versus PTSD, but we just have to know about it, first of all. This is a big part of the reason I'm doing this work is that I think there's so much out there that we don't know, and our lives could massively transform with just a conversation like this. So that's really incredible just to know that the likelihood is there and the possibility is there. Are the conditions spire? Yes, and. Okay. So there are various conditions. Um, Here I'm referring to very important work done by Tedeschi and Calhoun, two researchers who have come up with the concept of post-traumatic growth, as well as Nassim Taleb, who came up with the idea of anti-fragility. There are various things that we can do. So the first thing to understand is that inherently, we are anti fragile systems. Let me give you a physiological example. You go to the gym, you're lifting weights, you're putting stress on your muscles. What happens as a result of it? They actually grow stronger. Hmm. 
So just putting stress on these muscles actually contributes to their growth. You know, imagine you go to the gym and all the weights are set on zero, (laughs) no resistance. You're not going to grow stronger. We need the resistance in order to grow because by our very nature, physiological nature, we are anti-fragile. Not just physiologically, psychologically, we are that too. So the thing about experiencing hardships and difficulties is that very often we get in the way of the natural system. How do we get in the way? One example, for instance, is we tell ourselves, oh, you need to be strong. Don't express your emotions. Don't cry. And paradoxically, it's actually when we give ourselves the permission to be human, when we do shed a tear, when we do express rather than suppress our emotions, whether it's in writing, whether it's in conversation, this is the time when we allow the natural process. That's when we allow ourselves to actually grow from hardship. You know, this is why we feel so much better after a good cry or a good talk, because we let nature take its course. Another thing, of course, is relationships. Probably the number one predictor of anti-fragility, the most important condition. It can be a romantic relationship. It can be a relationship with a friend. It can be work relationships, families. And again, I'm not talking about perfect relationships. Those actually don't exist. I'm talking about close, intimate, supportive relationships that are critical, not just for happiness, but also for anti-fragility, for Resilience 2.0. So anti-fragility, I uh, got to interview Jonathan Haidt a few years ago, and I was shocked. So I'm a millennial. I was shocked to realize that there are times that, you know, I grew up in the generation of kids who were mostly given a gold star. And, you know, like we were, we were, and I know that's totally reducing how he talks about it, but generationally, and I'm going to generalize because this isn't true for everyone and we all have our own experiences, but we did not have as much resistance perhaps as our parents or our grandparents And so when you talk about anti-fragility, I immediately went to those moments I've had hardship and gone, I don't know how I'm going to get through this, right? And what you're saying is even knowing about PTG can help me go, oh, I can get through this. And in fact, I'll be better because of it. It's exactly right. It's about reframing Mm -hmm. challenges, hardships, and difficulties. And reframing is important. You know, we spoke about how do you reframe, does inspiration come before action or vice versa. Just that reframing can make a big difference in the same way. Reframing hardships, difficulties, and challenges can and does make a big difference. Now, there's a very important point here because I'm not in any way glorifying or romanticizing trauma Mm -hmm. or hardships or difficulties. So many of the traumas that people experience, and they, of course, wish they hadn't experienced those You know, so when saying, oh, you know, COVID came and it was a traumatic experience, it was for the best. Or as many people say, everything happens for the best. I don't believe that. You know, people died as a result of it. You know, people who experienced trauma and abuse, you can't say, you shouldn't say, because it's not true that it was for the best. However, while things don't necessarily happen for the best, we can choose to make the best of things that happen. And that's a very important distinction because saying that things happen for the best, that's blind optimism, detached optimism. Saying that we can choose to make the best of things that happen, that's grounded optimism. That's healthy, realistic optimism. Because very often we do have a choice about what we do with what happened. 
very often we don't have a choice about what happened. Yeah, that's a really great distinction and clarifier on how are we making the most or creating meaning and moving through the things that happen. So the thing you mentioned, too, is this idea of, and I know a good amount of people like this, where the narrative is something tough happens, be strong. You know, and I think even when you're saying be strong, what maybe is even better is like be impenetrable. You know, it's like act as if all is okay, and you move forward acting as if. What you're saying, though, is I'm doing this. It's like open up and allow versus shutting down and being impenetrable. Yeah, it's exactly right. In fact, when you look at the research on uh, people who experienced loss, you know, loss of a loved one, there are essentially two groups. One group would say, I'm going to be strong. I'm going to make it through this. I'm not going to let this bring me mm-hmm. down. And when everyone around them looks at them, they say, wow, they're strong. Well done. You know, I'm, I'm so proud of you. On the other hand, the second group that breaks down that sheds many more tears, that emotes, that talks about what they're going through. And very often those around them are worried, are concerned. Oh, wow, they're not doing well. I hope they can be as strong as, you know, person A in dealing with this. Now, the interesting thing is you go to these two groups a year later. In most cases, group two is doing a lot better than group one. Five years later, the difference is even more uh, acute. So those who gave themselves the permission to be human, to experience the full range of human emotions in the long term will do a lot better. Why? Because they let nature take its course. Because we all have a natural healer within us. The thing, though, is we mustn't get in its way. And when you tell yourself, don't emote, don't feel, don't cry, don't talk about it, you're actually fighting this natural healer. You're going against the grain against nature. Now, there is an issue here, though, because we can't always fully express our emotions. And it's true. And sometimes we don't want to wear our heart on our sleeves. And that's okay. As long as we have what Professor Brian Little from the University of Cambridge calls a restorative niche. What's a restorative niche? A restorative niche is a place, a space in our life when we can be fully ourselves, when we can completely express our emotions. So it can be later on during the day. It can be over lunch when we meet our best friend. It can be uh, tomorrow when I go to the therapist's office. Whatever it is, we need those niches in our life, those spaces and places where we can fully, wholly be ourselves. I heard you say stress is inevitable in our lives It's not that we're trying to remove stress so that we have none in order to be happy or to improve well-being. It's that we need to ensure that we have the appropriate, and what you say now makes perfect sense, restorative niche. It's the lack of restoration from the stress that actually causes challenges down the line. What differences do we see between person A who's like, I have to be strong, I'm going to close up and keep trudging on versus person B as their life moves on? Yeah, it's a great connection you made, Leah, because it's exactly that recovery. You know, going back to the analogy, if you go to the gym and you lift weights, over time, you're actually going to grow stronger, healthier, better off. But what if you go to the gym and you lift weights and then more weights and more and more weights? Then you're actually going to get injured. Then you're going to get weaker rather than stronger. So what we need alongside that stress in the gym is recovery, is that restorative niche. In sports, you know, coaches emphasize 
recovery as much as they emphasize hard work. So that restorative niche, if it's not there, and this is what you find in those people who do not give themselves that permission to be human, you find breakdown, fragility rather than anti-fragility. You find meltdown. You find burnout. Not exaggerating here, by the way. Billions of people around the world are experiencing burnout. Now, arguably more than ever, as a result of the pandemic that we went through, as a result of the war that's going on, as a result of the economic uncertainty, the VUCA world that we're living in. So there are so many reasons, legitimate reasons to experience stress. And that's okay. We need to experience it. And we need recovery. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Tal Ben-Shahar talking about the SPIRE method, which is practices to help you live a happier and more fulfilled life. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Hi, I'm Tober Korn, LinkedIn's Chief Product Officer. On my podcast, Building One, we dive deep into what it takes to build great products. Recently, we had Zach Perret, the CEO of Plaid, and he shared about his struggles building a financial app for consumers and how he was able to turn it all around with a critical pivot. Take a listen. I personally couldn't resonate as much with the consumer set that we were trying to reach. I just didn't have that level of empathy. When we made the shift to building a B2B product though, I was building the product that I wanted. My co-founder and I were creating the product that we wanted ourselves and we had so much empathy for what that product was. Such a great insight. You know, in that sense, we got lucky because we were, we were creating a thing for ourselves. And then the people that we were talking to also had the same problems we did. They were fintech developers. We'd been a fintech developer. Uh, we'd been trying to build a fintech product for a year. And so, we had such deep empathy. We had such a clear ability to... If you want to hear more of Zach Perret's story and the lessons that follow, listen and subscribe to my podcast, Building One. And we're back with Tal Ben-Shahar, founder at Happiness Studies Academy and Potential Life. So tell me about how Spire plays a role in this recovery and in our well-being. I'd love for you to share each of the pillars and maybe just one example of how we can focus on that pillar. So the S of Spire stands for spiritual well-being. Spiritual well-being is a, a can, of course, and for many people is about religion, but it can also be about experiencing a sense of meaning and purpose in life. In whatever we do, whether it's uh, volunteering or the work that we do or uh, the family that we spend time with. So a sense of meaning and purpose, spiritual well-being, also being present to whatever it is that we're doing that contributes to spiritual well-being. Uh, let me ask you one thing. Please. How do we know we're being present? Mm. You know, there's a, a wonderful, wonderful book by Yonge Mingyur Rinpoche who's a Vietnamese slash Tibetan monk called The Joy of Living. And there he says that being mindful or practicing mindfulness is not about 
being in the here and now all the time. It's rather returning to the here and now. And uh, he calls these moments, oops moments, where he says, let's say you're meditating and <laughs> you suddenly start, you know, thinking about your la run later or about, you know, conversation. Having this you morning. Have, exactly. <laughs> and, then, and then you say, oops, and you go come back to the here and now. And the here and now can be focusing on the breath going in and out. It can be focusing on an emotion or a, on a physiological stimulus, whatever it is. But re oops, and returning to the present moment. And what he says is that meditation really is about having these oops moments. And I love that because he takes the pressure off meditation. Okay, now I have to concentrate for 30 minutes and not lose my focus. No, no, no. It's about losing your focus and simply returning to focus. So that's spiritual well-being. It's about being present and it's about purpose. Then it's about physical well-being, the P of Spire. And that's about the uh, NEST model. NEST is nutrition, exercise, sleep, or relaxation and recovery in general. And the T of NEST is touch. Uh, there's wonderful work by uh, Tiffany Field on the importance of touch and the importance of touch for babies, for the elderly, and everyone in between. Um, there's research on the importance of nutrition for well-being. I am for moderation. Moderation means, you know, what we eat, how much. We need to take better care of our physical health in this way. So regular physical exercise has the same effect on our psychological well-being as our most powerful psychiatric medication. You know, so exercising at least three times a week is critical, not just for physical health, for mental health as well. And then there is intellectual well-being, the eye of Spire. You know, Leah, one of my favorite studies came out quite recently, shows that people who are curious, who ask questions, who are learners, who want to know, are not just more successful. They're not just happier. They actually live longer. Isn't that amazing? So, you know, curiosity kills the cat, but it actually helps us <laughs> It saves the human. <laughs> yes. I love that. And then there is relationships. The R of Spire, number one predictor of happiness is a quality time we spend with people we care about and who care about us. And that, of course, includes also kindness and generosity. One of the best ways to increase our own levels of happiness is to help others become happier through our kindness and generosity. So it's not just what we get, it's what we give. It's mostly what we <laughs> give. And through that, we get. Love that. And then what about the E? So the E, this is about our emotional well-being. And that has to do with accepting, embracing painful emotions as natural. And uh, it's about cultivating pleasurable emotions like gratitude, like love, like joy. So what you're saying is happiness is a system that if we have access to the information we need to understand how that system works, we can essentially engineer experiences or ways in which we experience life, not always as happy or pleasured people, but as people who are able to find meaning, joy, and growth in our experiences. Mm. And, you know, Leah, I like the fact that you use the word engineer because when you're talking about engineering, you're talking about understanding the components. I mean, what do engineers do? They build things. We need to understand those components that together make up that system. And again, the system can be a car or it can be a happy life. Now, why is it so important to know those uh, components? Because there is um, 
a real barrier and a misunderstanding around this whole idea of happiness. And many experts in the field, many scholars in the field of happiness fall into this trap, are stopped by this barrier. And what is it? It's that if you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, today I choose happiness. Today I'm going to be happy because happiness is important for me, because it's a value, because I care about it. You're actually likely to be less happy. Now, that's a problem because who doesn't want to be happier? Especially given the fact that we know that also if you increase levels of happiness, you um, become more creative, more innovative, your relationships will improve, you become healthier, you live longer. I mean, there are all these incentives beyond the fact that it feels good to feel good. There are all these incentives to want happiness. And yet if I wake up in the morning and I say, I choose to be happy, I'm going to be happier, I'm going to pursue happiness, you'll actually become less happy. This is research done by Iris Moss. And it's very important research. So what do we do about it? What do we do about this, you know, seeming contradiction, paradox, barrier? What we do is we pursue happiness indirectly. So if you go outside right now and let's say the sun is shining and you look at the sun directly, you'll actually hurt yourself. It will burn. You'll tear up. However, what if you take that same sunlight, those same rays, and you put them through a prism and then you look at the outcome of what comes after the prism. In other words, you look at the sunlight indirectly through the prism. Well, then you can enjoy the colors of the rainbow. And it's the same with happiness. Pursuing it directly, saying, I want to be happy. I choose to be happy. That will actually make us less happy. But if you break it down into its elements, into its components, and then pursue those, then you can become happier. So if I wake up in the morning and say, I want to be happy, not a good thing. But if I say, I'm going to find more meaning in my work, or I'm going to exercise regularly and actually do it, or I'm going to learn some more things, or I'm going to spend more quality time with my loved ones, or meditate, or do the gratitude exercise, whatever it is. These are all indirect ways of pursuing happiness. And together, this is why you're an engineer, and together you create that system and you actually become happier, but only if you pursue it indirectly. Oh, it's a beautiful metaphor. All right, Tal, I'll have you complete these three statements. Happier humans are? More generous humans, more mindful humans. Happier work is? Place where people experience psychological safety and a place where people experience a community. And a happier world has? Where we focus on kindness above all. Thank you so much for being here, Tal. This was a joy. <laughs> Thank you, Leah. That was Tal Ben-Shahar, author of Happier No Matter What. One big thing before we go, happiness is a fleeting emotion. Oftentimes it's a result of something that happens to us. What we're talking about in this conversation, though, is this continued state of contentment, of joy. And that relies on us purposefully practicing a state of mind and cultivating that joy over time. Just like any skill or habit, we have to keep practicing and working on it, but it is well worth it. We can make small changes in our daily lives, like expressing gratitude or connecting with others, pursuing goals that are meaningful to us. And doing all of that allows us to build a foundation for a more joyful, content, and fulfilled life. 
because ultimately that joy, that contentment is a journey. It's not a destination and it requires us to keep showing up for it every day. If this conversation was inspiring and has you reflecting on ways to work on your day-to-day contentment and joy, share it with someone who might benefit from doing the same. Maybe this conversation can help them find what they're looking for and help other people like you find our show by leaving us a rating before you go. Even better, and we're trying something new, send a quick voice memo to our email in the arena at linkedin.com telling me a new perspective you have on happiness from this conversation. As always, you can find me on LinkedIn writing about human potential and meaningful living every week. In the Arena is a production of LinkedIn News. The show is produced by Alexis Ramdow and Rafa Fariha. Asaf Drone makes sure we sound good in the studio. Joe DeGiorgi mixes our show. Enrique Montalvo is the executive producer of LinkedIn Editorial Productions. Dave Pond is head of news production. Courtney Coop is head of LinkedIn Original Audio and Video. Dan Roth is the editor-in-chief of LinkedIn, and I'm Leah Smart. Thanks for coming with me, and I'll see you next week.